my end, I'm going to give a talk um, which is largely going to echo a lot of what has just been said, really. Um, I've uh, called it Shining a Light on the Invisible, and then with the subtitle of Adversity, Relationships, and Psychologically Informed Environments. Very long title. And I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm actually employed by the psychotherapy department in, in Edinburgh, um, which is very small. Uh, Blinken, you'd miss it. It's the psychoanalytic service, which is not very in just now. Uh, so there's not many of us, it's just four of us. And I don't actually work there. I work um, uh, providing services to people who um, experience sort of severe and multiple deprivation or multiple exclusion, who are typically um, homeless, um, involved in drug services, or involved with criminal justice service, or typically all three. Um, I guess the relevance to me of this is there is going to be a hard edges report in Scotland coming out in June, which uh, I'm sure many of you will be very interested in. I can possibly tell you what's in it, but I can say that it's very likely to say something about the importance of education in terms of thinking about uh, prevention um, of the sort of outcomes of, and life of, of the people I uh, find myself working with um, later on in life. So the talks in a few chapters, uh, just 40, there's only four, four of it. Uh, the first one is called... Uh, the Invisible Breath. This is Dr. Zeus. People have been listening to Dr. Um, so, what I mean by the Invisible Breath is, is I'm going to talk a bit about relationships. I know relationships have been talked about before. Um, I want to sort of stress just how important they are. Here is uh, Winnicott. People have probably read Winnicott. If you haven't, you should. It's very good. Um, he doesn't get all the sort of plaudits that Bowlby gets because he didn't come up with any theory like attachment theory. Uh, but he comes up with stuff like this. Uh, there's no such thing as a baby, um, which might come as a surprise to some of you who've had babies. For <laughs> um, those of you who haven't had a baby, and he's really quite, let's say, he's quite famous. I mean, obviously, famous is in very small circles. Uh, people, but he's quite famous for coming up with sort of things like this, which then obviously mean something on the face of it. But what he's, I think, talking about here is um, just how fundamental it is. Well, those who have had babies will remember that when you get them home, I mean, when we got when we got ours home, like I had anything to do with it, very much it. When we got ours home, it was in the car seat on the table, uh, and you suddenly realise. Christ, what we're going to do with this? Um, it's, it's almost entirely useless. It sort of doesn't walk, doesn't talk, uh, can't control its sphincters, um, can't really do very much, can't dress itself, and you have to start doing something. Um, and to use Winnicott's sort of 50s language, uh, if you leave it for too long, it will no longer be a going concern. And I guess by that he means it won't be alive. And he means both psychologically, obviously, but physically, that actually... For a, a, a child to be a thing in the world that is real and alive, it requires to be in relation to something else. So in that regard, there's no such thing as a baby on its own. It doesn't exist. It only exists in as much as it's in relation uh, to something else, be it dad, mum, or uh, other things. So yeah, and I guess the extension of that is that's true across the lifespan. That never really changes. But only, only All of us only exist in the degree to which we are in connection and in relation to other people. Um, that's external relationships, which are a bit easier uh, to describe. I'm going to try and have a bunch of internal relationships, because they're quite important, uh, via the medium of uh, Calvin and Hobbes. You probably can't read this at the back, can you? So I'll, I'll go to it. Can you, can you see the Calvin and Hobbes bit at the top? Have you read Calvin and Hobbes before? You might know this particular. Has anyone read Calvin and Hobbes before? Good. 
Uh, Covenant Hogs, those who haven't read it, uh, uh, just step into Winnicott Rotten's <laughs> importance in Western thought. That's good. Um, but anyway, those who haven't read it, it's Covenant Hogs. Calvin is a six year old boy. Hogs is his pet tiger, not real tiger, a pet tiger, uh, stuffed tiger. But when there's no adults in the room, he's sort of alive and real, certainly real in Calvin's mind. And in this particular uh, I think he's waking Hobbs up to say that it's bedtime and Hobbs says, well, I always wanted to slept through that and Calvin says, well I wonder why we dream when we sleep uh, do our brains just get bored? I wonder why we don't just plan to sleep and Hobbs is the sort of philosopher, as you might guess from the final I think we dream so we don't have to be apart for so long if we're in each other's dreams we can play together all night and then in the starting, well I'll see you in a few minutes old buddy and Hobbes says, well, I'll be there. And then in the panel down here, they're sort of falling asleep. So they're moving into sort of unconsciousness, separating from each other. And in the last panel, they're asleep. So now they're separate. They're no longer in the world with each other. But I guess the idea is that they have each other in their minds. Um, and the extension of that would be that our minds, um, all of our minds, uh, are made up of all the external relationships that we've had that we internalize and they populate this thing that we end up calling Adam or us or me or Susan or Bob or Calvin or Hobbes. I think Hobbes has an internal world as well. The other thing I want to sort of talk about here is that things like emotion and our mental health and our well-being and mental well-being are very much a consequence of our relational structure. It's our relationships, our internal relationships that describe our emotional world. Emotions are a consequence of the relational activity that we have internally and externally. So if you want to know about your mental health, look at your relational network externally, and maybe have a think about the relationships that you have internally. Um, Does everyone feel they have an internal world? It's exciting, isn't it? No one can see it. Stay with your mind. The important thing about that, I think, is not to sort of over-egg it, but to sort of say that relationships are... um, a bit like the psychological equivalent of breathing. Um, breathing is something that most of us in this room, in fact, not all of us in this room, have been doing. Uh, <laughs> I, I paused the missing Have been doing since we were born, actually, not even just this morning, since we were born, uh, to the point where we've become quite skilled at it and we don't really notice it. We don't tend to go home after a day at work and go, another good day at work, and just to breathe all day. <laughs> Um, we don't really do that, we just sort of take it for granted really, uh, until it starts going wrong, um, and those of you who've ever choked or seen anyone choke uh, will uh, realise that um, it's horrible, and it's at that point you start to understand something very fundamental about breathing, which is it's the whole shooting match, and if you're not breathing it's all over, so it's finished you don't have to worry about your mortgage or anything else that's going on because you're going to die very, very soon and relationships are a bit like that there's sort of something that we sort of do automatically and invisibly. If they're going well, we don't notice them. Again, we don't tend to come home after a day and go, yes, I managed to sustain a number of emotionally and psychologically satisfying relationships today. <laughs> Another successful day at the office. Um, but we do notice, I guess, if they choke. And like we'll, even those who have got relatively healthy relational worlds will notice when something goes wrong, if someone dies or a friend of ours tells us they don't like us anymore or something goes wrong in our relationships and we choke a bit and we feel it there's a sort of emotional response a lot of the people I work with um, by virtue of the sorts of experiences they've had typically um, their relationships choke a lot um, 
And this is one way of understanding things like homelessness and substance misuse and mental health problems um, and being involved in the criminal justice service is that they are very late emerging symptoms, actually, of some very, very early uh, relational difficulties. That if you can't, that if you have difficulties in forming and maintaining life-giving relationships in the world, then the consequences are severe, extremely severe, and extremely life-limiting, to the point where one of the logical sort of endpoints might be you are homeless, relationshipless, jobless, disconnected, very, very disconnected. Which I always think brings an interesting irony to the term independence. In the health service, we're big on independence, we like people to be independent. But who the hell is independent? None of us are independent. I'm very proud of my dependency. It's only my dependency that keeps me alive. But if you want to see someone who's really independent, see some of the people uh, I'm involved with in Edinburgh who are as close to an independent human being as you might see, that they really can't make healthy dependent sort of connections in some way. Or you can watch uh, Castaway with Tom Hanks. But even he sort of gets quite attached to, to uh, volleyball. That's chapter one. Chapter two, um, I want to talk a bit about um, some of the consequences of uh, adversity and how that impacts on, on relationships. In, the, in my experience, most adversity, uh, trauma, neglect, uh, deprivation, abuse, tends to happen within the relational uh, sort of world in fact. In fact, everything happens in the relational world, so of course it mostly happens in the relationship, relational world. Um, people will probably be very familiar with this quote and, and familiar with thing one and thing two as well. Um, I quite like it. Both of them, actually. So, adversity is, is I mean, here's a, a picture of, of something, but actually, what I quite like about the term adversity is it's very, very broad, and certainly in terms of the people I find myself in relation to, the sorts of adversity they experience are very, very broad. Some very, very obvious, like trauma and abuse and big uh, experiences of neglect, and some are, uh, are less obvious, um, like being sort of sent away to private school when you're eight and becoming disconnected in your mum in a way that you find very, very traumatic. And even later on when you tell your psychiatrist what happens, say, in normal childhood, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, good, private school, good, yeah. And it's, and it's not really noticed, but it's not overtly obvious as something that might be uh, traumatic to somebody. I think the other thing that's important, um, we haven't really got time to get into it massively, but there's something in our early years about choice um, that you start to have to think about whether any of us really chose our minds, whether we chose our experience, whether we chose our parents, and I suppose anyone in this room really did choose their mind, did they? Did anyone choose their mind? Maybe someone did. I don't know, anyone who really chose their mind, chose who they were. Um, uh, similarly, anyone in this room has ever tried to change their mind? I don't mean to like, give up smoking or go to the gym more. I mean, stop being you and be someone else. It's quite a hard thing to do. And often in, interesting, in the health service, they're often asking people to stop being them and be someone else and wondering why they are deeply resistant to that particular uh, sort of activity. And we use terms like choice as a way of saying, well, he's making choices. He's making choices to burgle this house or beat this person up or take drugs or whatever it might be. Like in some way we, we have choices about this sort of thing. Trauma and adversity in terms of our experience, and going back to talk about with Calvin and Hobbes, is something we tend to internalise and it starts to make up who populates our internal world, about who we are and how we understand the world and how we understand relationships in it. And that can lead um, to some very sort of complicated and interesting sort of responses, particularly to things like care. I work for the health service, we're very pathological about care, we make hospitals and things like that that say, we're going to help you, we're going to care for you. 
And we tend to get very, very bent out of shape when we find ourselves in relation to people who don't do care properly, who do things like say they really, really want care, and then later on say they really, really don't want care, and sometimes do that in sort of one sentence. We, we really don't like that. We quite like people who come along and do care properly. We say, I really want care, and we give them care. They go, thanks very much. Your care is really good. And they digest that care, and they get better, and then it gives a box of chocolates and a thank you card. We like that sort of stuff. It's really nice. That's the way the health service should work. Um, but of course, if, if people have had sort of some of their experiences of care have been very problematic, and what they've learned is that actually care might be something that you shouldn't trust, or it might be something that's um, least... Uh, complicated by an idea that something difficult might happen, then you might find that you have competing relationships in your mind, sort of ambivalence, where there may be a part of you who's very, very interested, in fact, very, very starving and hungry for care, and another part uh, that's deeply phobic of the idea that anybody would ever get attached to you or help you or care for you uh, at all in any sort of way. Um, this can lead to all sorts of interesting misunderstandings. Um, here's Winnicott again, <laughs> another of his famous uh, quotes. Uh, when a young person is to be found running down the street, smashing windows, he is looking for his mother. It's quite hard to sell down the high court. What I guess he's talking about, what he's trying to say something about, is that if somebody has not been able to find a sort of something solid and reliable and containing and robust and all the sort of bulbous kind of ideas of what good quality relationships might look like, then he may go and look for it elsewhere. He may go and start looking for containment or looking for boundaries or looking for something outside of the home. Um, but interestingly, if he's expressing his distress in distressing ways, then he may not evoke concern. Like when someone is uh, smashing your window, it doesn't tend to be the case where you go, poor chap, he looks really lost, I wonder what he's I wonder what he's after, really, and what this behaviour means. That doesn't tend to be our, our initial response when someone's breaking into our house or, or doing things that can evoke um, responses that are, interestingly, sometimes replicate the very thing that's driven the behaviour, that sometimes people can behave in ways that evoke quite abusive responses in us, even though uh, it may be the case that this person has come from very abusive uh, backgrounds in some way. Um, but the relationships are still there. These are still relationships. This is a very definite relationship. This person's kicking this window. Um, here's uh, Hinchard, talk about Hinchard women. But here's the Joker. Have anyone seen this film? Yeah. It's um, well, I'm, I'm just below Kevin Hall. Um, and, and here's the, the Joker in the, in the Batman films. And he's involved in the business just now in this frame of blowing up the hospital. So that's not a benign relationship, that's a very strong relationship. Um, he's blowing it up. He has a very interesting and powerful and definite relationship with the hospital. He doesn't like it. And he's gone out of his way to buy explosives and then take the time to rig it all up and blow the thing up. That's a very sort of interesting thing to do to us. He's not just walking past it, not benign. Um, and this is the sort of person that Hinchwood here is talking about, he's a psychoanalyst who used to work, try and work with the health service, try and get them to be a bit more thoughtful about what they do, uh, with some success, perhaps. Um, and here he is trying to talk to psychiatrists about a group of people who attract the, the term, the, the diagnosis personality disorder. Um, and they have relationships with carers that are characteristic, and sometimes they're characterised by the defeat of health. 
And there, as I say, there's something about the defeat of health in healthcare workers which um, uh, can be quite problematic and lead us to do uh, what, what psychoanalysts would call enactment, where we end up sort of replicating uh, the very thing that might have brought the person to see us in the first place. So if you have somebody, for example, who's had a fair amount of intrusive um, sexual trauma, for example, uh, and they express uh, that in a, a way, a range of distressing ways, and then we find ourselves locking them up in hospital and sticking needles into them in ways that almost completely reenact some of the trauma that has brought them to that hospital in the first place. But it's done under the guise of treatment. We are treating that person. without, In the short term, maybe we give them something that calms them down, but without any sort of real thought about what the sort of relational dynamic might be doing, what it might be reenacting in terms of uh, playing out a sort of traumatic dynamic that's been brought uh, into the care service as well. Is Thomas Mayer's, this is from the paper called The Ailment by Thomas May, which is a supreme paper to read. Uh, and I like to say the suffering who frustrates a keen therapist by failing to improve is always in danger of meeting primitive human behavior disguised as treatment. And I guess you could see that in, in places like education, where the, the, you could say, you know, the child who frustrates a keen teacher by failing to learn is always in danger of meeting. Uh, some kind of primitive human behavior disguised as, I don't know, behavior management, maybe it might be the, the term, I'm not, I'm not particularly sure. Um, but that's not to be critical, really. I think there's something very, very important, actually, to, to think about and connect with in terms of when people um, who have experienced very, very high levels of trauma, adversity, and distress express that distress in very distressing ways. It's very ordinary for us to respond in ways that sort of reenact that. Um, you can be familiar with these, I mean, these are very popular sort of headlines, certainly, but it's, it's a very easy slip, isn't it, to get into that there is somebody good and that there's somebody bad, and it has a sort of cognitive simplicity to it and satisfies perhaps our own emotional responses uh, to what's gone on. Um, people, I'm sure, remember these images from, from Baby P, and it was interesting how you reasonably thoughtful media outlets could find themselves into sort of real language of abuse about you know, something very abusive has happened here. What we should do is abuse these people because they've done something. We should abuse the social worker. Like it's very, It felt very hard to get out of the abusive dynamic because there's something that had gone on that evokes very, very strong emotional responses in us. And I'm not being critical of that. I think you have to acknowledge that, that there is sometimes things that happen that can evoke very strong responses in you. But how do you think about it? Because I guess the inconvenient truth to a degree is these people here were once this age. And also, this child here made the news because he died. But of course, the vast majority of baby peas don't die. And they don't make it into the news, and they're not a big national story. They live. And they become six, and they become eight, and they become ten. And it's not that it's a definite life course, but what sort of things might this person be doing when they are 14 or 16? At what point does our sympathy move from, oh, that's terrible, to, what are we showing? What is he doing that for? Or something more extreme, actually, when this child is expressing some of their early distress in very, very, very distressing ways to other people. How do we understand that? How do we remain uh, thoughtful in the face of that? Um, that was a difficult chapter. Uh, chapter 3, Under the Bonnet. Um, people read this, this is the Three tree, three fish in a tree. Fish in a tree. How can that be? I don't think that has anything to do with the talk. Actually, <laughs> it's like it. And it's got three in the front. Well, that has maybe something to do with it. Um, 
So under the bonnet is how do you really get into thinking about what a relationship is and how to understand it. Um, here's a picture of a, a, a young boy surfing. Um, I don't know who this is. It's, it's no child of mine. <laughs> Not that I know of. At least, anyway. But my, my, my son did go for a surf lesson. I took him for a surf lesson. We live in, uh, in Haddington, and I used to surf. We live in New Zealand. It's not interesting. But uh, he went for a surf lesson. They do that in Dunbar. And he was very keen. And I took him along and uh, dropped him off. He's 12. And he went off and had a surf lesson. And I sat around and then came back after about two hours and picked him up. And I asked him, well, how was the surf lesson? And because uh, I paid for it, I spent And uh, we sat in the car all the way back to Paddington. He was really quite excited. And all he told me about was content. Only content. He said, you know, we went down and then we got the wetsuit on. There was sand and it was a bit scratchy. And we went to see the waves all tumbled over, blah, blah, blah. Then he sort of came out and was like, ooh, it's cold, the wind, blah, blah, blah. And da, 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 blah, blah, blah. And the sort of punchline really was, and at some point we stood up and, whoa, I was surfing. I'm dead good, Dad. I'm really good. That's right. Um, all content. What he didn't say at any point was, you dropped me at the car park, and because of the relational history that you and I have and what I've internalized, I was able to go with this man who I've never met before and take on board some of the stuff that he said. I was able to internalize it, digest it, and make use of it. So when he gave me instructions to follow me into the sea, a place of relative danger, I was happy to go along. Because of my internal world that's been populated by the experiences I've had with you and with other people on the rest of it. And I don't really have a model in my mind of a man who's going to take me into the sea and drown me. And, and as a consequence of all of that, Dad, I was able to learn to surf. Like, he didn't even mention it. But of course, the reality is that is the only reason he learned anything. Because he'd come along, and what he already knew was that you do not trust strange men, for example, or you just do not trust adults. They're full of shit, or whatever it might be, or they're going to abuse you or harm you. And they said, they'd say, right, come on, guys, let's all go down the beach. And you went, oh, fool, I'm not coming with you, you weirdo. Uh, something else might have happened. Like, he might have been sent up to the dunes, and he could really explore the business of being excluded and separate and not understood and not belonging. And he could have done that for a good two hours in a way that would just keep his own version of the world uh, alive in some way. Um, so it's how you, that's what I mean about the invisibility visibility of it, that there's something about relational dynamics that are very, very hard to see. They're there and we can feel them sometimes, um, but they're not sort of, uh, sort of overtly obvious in, in, in sort of some way. Um, in the healthcare service, we are, um, what's the term I would use, at, at times institutionally autistic about this. Uh, and what I mean by that is we have our mind, we're pretty pathological about healthcare, that's how we end, you don't, you don't end up becoming a doctor, this is a doctor. Um, you don't end up becoming a doctor or a psychologist by accident. This is of a slightly pathological commitment to the business of uh, helping or doing something or sorting something out. Um, and so we have our minds. And then typically, health services are designed by the healthy. Um, drug services are designed by people who don't take drugs. And homeless services are designed by the how, guess what? Um, and so we're a bit sort of, we have our mind and we don't understand. Um, necessarily that other people have other minds. So we've built the health service with a very, very fundamental premise in with the bricks, in with the foundations that we rarely articulate, in fact we never really articulate it, but it's utterly key. And that is the health service requires you to be able to come along and trust somebody who says they are going to help you. 
That's how the whole thing runs. It's not articulated, but that's what it's required. You need to be able to go to the clinic, sit in the waiting room, go into a room with a stranger, have the door shut behind you, all that sort of stuff. And when people don't do that, that's what I mean by not doing healthcare properly, we tend to exclude them by doing things like uh, discharging them, or banning them, or calling them personality disorders, or whatever it might be, as a way of sort of um, not having to be in relation to them. And something about the ways in which they're relating to us, which defeat us, and we can start sort of um, excluding them in some way. Um, we do a lot of that, even in trauma services, ironically. We will do things like discharge people if they miss three appointments. And you'd think in trauma services we would understand that actually some people might be very, very uh, ambivalent and understandably anxious about what it might mean to come along and be in relation to someone and go into a room with them and have them ask you questions about stuff and get inside you and be interested in you in all that sort of way. Um, but we don't really sort of exclude them. Um, um, or discharge them. Similarly, we discharge lots and lots of people from the mental health service because they don't, they're not engaging someone to engage in them. They're not doing it properly in some way. And usually what we're discharging there is the feelings that they evoke in us. That there's something about the way in which they're relating which annoys us, defeats us, pisses us off. We feel deprived, maybe we feel abused, maybe we feel neglected. And by God, we didn't train for 11 years to be made to feel useless in this sort of way. So we can solve that problem by discharging the patient and getting rid of them. And in the same way, getting rid of the feelings that they're evoking or locking them up or, uh, as I say, uh, calling them nice, friendly terms like personality disorder. Like, you can bet your ass that wasn't a term made up by a patient. That's one group of people talking about how they feel, I think, about another group of people um, and what they are doing and how, they are, how they're relating to them in some way. Um, I, I assume the same is similar in sort of education. This is my... As memory of school, there's lots of content. Content, um, here's some content. I recognize that one. That's true. I can't vouch for them. It's only my experience there was lots of content. And school is about content. When you hear about school on the news, it tends to be about content. It strikes me. Interesting for the guys I work with or the people I work with, if there's one thing they could have learned at school, just one, and that was you can trust a human being, at least one human being. That would have been a great outcome. It really, really would. Because I certainly work with people who can still go on and learn this stuff. Could go and still learn educational content about history and geography and maths and English and all that sort of stuff, which is important, I'm not denying it. But try teaching a 40-year-old man to trust. It is very, very, very hard at that stage, I think, in my experience. Um, so it strikes me that for some kids who are coming into school and, and, where, and what they have learned, even by the time they get into school, is be very, very wary of adults, maybe don't trust them. Um, that can be a huge barrier to learning, like a surf lesson. If you're coming along and you're spending most of your time monitoring the person who's teaching you and wondering whether they're going to harm you or do something to you, that can really, really get in the way of learning. And it doesn't matter how many whiteboards you have or iPads, that's not, what's, that's not the issue here. It's about all education is relational. It's a relationship between a group of people called teachers and a group of people called pupils, for example. But the fundamental conduit, like with the health service, is the relational contact between those two people. And if that's problematic in any way, then learning is going to be sort of compromised. Um, similarly, I guess you have paramounts of this, uh, targets. If you add these targets are really interesting because they, they, again, build into an assumption that somebody can do the business of being in relation to somebody who's teaching them. There's nothing in here right at this end which sort of says, look, just before we go to targets, 
Is the relational basis in place? Have we even looked at it? Have we thought about whether this person is able to make a human connection that would allow learning to happen? Because kids, when they're in very, very secure attachments, you can't stop them learning. Like, it's a real problem sometimes when they just learn it. I mean, boy, you sent us about sort of fortnight for hours. Oh my God, when did you learn this stuff? Oh, well, I just learned it because I was in a really strong relationship with Fortnite. <laughs> just going and I could write a thesis on you know, it. It's just sort of in there in some way. Um, it's in trust Fortnite, I suppose. Um, and when I guess that's all going well, uh, it sort of looks a bit like this, doesn't it? This is the end of the bonnet thing, where the car's nice and shiny and everyone's doing well and things are running uh, very, very sort of smoothly in some way. Uh, we don't tend to, tend to look under the bonnet, really, because it's a bit messy under there. We don't really know how it works. Um, but when it is going wrong, I think it's incredibly important to, um, to start to try and look at the more invisible stuff, the sort of relational context in which things like learning uh, and health and, and care happen. Um, and that requires looking under perhaps the bonnet of the people we're working with, but fundamentally as well, it also requires looking under our own bonnet. Right? Or what are we like? How are we setting ourselves up? What are our desires? What are our sort of motives? Again, I think in the health service, we're very, very good at talking about patients, or case conferences, about patients. Let's talk about a patient. Yes, let's talk about a patient. And we still have 99.5% talking about patients and about 0.5% uh, just slacking off, uh, and very little time thinking about what are we up to? How do we set these services up? What does it mean? How do we set ourselves up in relation uh, to the group of people uh, that we are working with? You know, what does discharging someone after previous appointments mean? Why do we do that? How does it make sense? Like, we don't spend a huge amount of time sort of doing that, because I say we can be a slightly... Um, <laughs> about the way care should happen. Care's like this, isn't it? Yes, care is like a sort of John Lewis transaction of, you know, I need a kettle, oh good, well we've got kettles, good, pay the money, and here's the kettle, everyone's happy, and kettles are transacting. That, that's kind of the way we'd like um, the health service to be with me. It's not always. Um, and you have to work very, very hard, I think, to get services to be thoughtful about how people are relating to that service, particularly when people are relating, as I say, in ways that can evoke difficult feelings in the carer. That as carers or teachers, you can end up feeling defeated, hated, abused, neglected. All of those sorts of traumatic dynamics that might be coming from somebody's history. It's far easier to sort of shift our attention uh, to Mrs. Brown, who turns her up and fills in all her thought diaries and gets better, and her beady eyes go, oh great, this is great, I feel like a really good psychologist, she's getting better, everyone's a winner, it's great. Compared to Mr. Brown here, who just comes along every week to tell me how utterly useless I am, and how he's not getting any better. Like, you'd have to be a masochist to want to spend your time in relation to that. Um, but actually, this is, might be the person with the greater health needs. But interestingly, in healthcare, we have a sort of version of the attainment gap called the inverse care law, which means the people who need the least care tend to get the most, and those who need the most care tend to get the least. And one of the things that underpins it is the emotional world that sits underneath the care relationship, and that we might find ourselves unconsciously, and at times consciously, drifting towards giving more care to people who do care properly and shifting those resources away from people who don't do care properly and then locating the problem in them and saying it's because they're not doing care properly. If they just change their minds and do care properly, then we could all sort of be happy about it in some way. And I guess it's similar with the attainment gap. So you might find unconsciously it might be easier to spend your time and resources with a pupil who is 
has a big appetite for learning and it can engage with you and make you feel good as a teacher. I'm doing well. Train to be a teacher and look, this child is learning. Might be a far more attractive proposition to being in relation to somebody where you think, I've done nothing. I've achieved nothing, like content-wise, nothing concrete. And it's that invisible stuff. Well, you may achieve something just by staying in relation to them. And again, that's a very, for me, that's always been a very hard sell with the health service to say that there might be an outcome which is just about staying in relation to people past the point where everyone else says, sorry, I've had enough, this is too unpleasant. So, um, this is the uh, last second. Would you please um, I know Maurice is not a. <laughs> He's got some interesting views nowadays, but he was a good lyricist in his time. Um, I like this is quite some. And it, it's really sort of to talk, uh, to try and talk a bit about this sort of hope. I think it's, it's gone to me sort of the more, the hopeful side of this isn't meant to be pessimistic, far from it really. Uh, what we know from uh, psychotherapy research studies, interestingly, psychotherapists don't tend to like this sort of data, is that it's not really the technical stuff that you do with somebody in a room that really describes outcome. It's the quality and the nature of the attachment and of the relationship is the biggest predictor of outcome by a mile. Whether you're doing CBT, DBT, whatever the three-letter acronym of the month is, whether you're doing that, uh, actually the bit that's underneath it that seems to actually predict outcome is the quality uh, and the nature of the relationship. Um, and my understanding of, of the educational process is that's very similar. This is from <laughs> really, really taking part in the education. There might be something about the way in which um, the relationship of education goes that starts to uh, starts to actually describe um, the outcome of of that sort of process in some way. So. Uh, in health service, we're sort of banging on about sort of psychologically informed environments as a way of understanding a, an approach to um, to working with with more sort of difficult sort of situations. So, has anyone seen one of these before? Yeah. It's a baby, isn't it? It's like slide, slide two. Um, but this is a, in our house we called it the mind gym because we're middle class in that sort of way. But I think it maybe even said it on the box, the, the mind gym. And the idea was that you slot the baby in, uh, those young ones, you build it and then you slot the baby in one of the four access points and then you turn it on and you go for sleep and you come back. Um, but the, the point is about this is it's an environment that is not just being randomly arrived at, like this is drawn upon an evidence base about what makes babies' cortexes tick. And so suddenly you get lots of uh, black and white things. So pandas made a huge comeback in the toy wilderness. Suddenly pandas were big because they're black and white. So you find out babies really like high contrast stuff. They like <coughs> black and white. Oh my god. So in an ideal world, this whole thing would be black and white, but then parents wouldn't buy it. So you have to sort of come up with some kind of compromise with the bits of black and white, like black and white trim around the edge here. And then babies also really like faces. They like this configuration. And so pandas are like catnip for babies because they've got the whole face thing going on and they've got the whole sort of black and white thing going on as well. That's, that's all that the psychologically informed environment really means. It means can we inform what we do based on a sound, evidence-based understanding of what the psychological and emotional needs are of the people we are working with. That's all it means. So, and I, I like the generality of it. It's not getting into trauma-informed. Like, psychologists are very good at narrowing and by doing so, excluding as opposed to keeping it really nice and broad. Let's just be informed. Not even psychological. Let's just be informed about an understanding, as good an understanding as possible of what's going on and that might describe an intervention. Um, so to give you a couple of case examples, um, one is a word, and it's this word, engagement. Um, 
uh, again, in, in the health service, we use this word a lot. Typically, or certainly in the area I work in, we used to use it a lot. Typically, in the context of this person's not engaging. They're not engaging. They're going, yes, I know. Bob, he really needs to engage. Because what we really mean by engagement is this. We like it when people do things like turn up and get involved in the business of doing treatment and so, or something and get better and say thank you and all the rest of it. Not so much when somebody does this. Um, but for me, it's all engagement. You know, often when we talk about someone not engaging, there's maybe 15 of us sat around a table saying, Bob really isn't engaging. And you think, when's the last time 15 people sat around a table talking about me? Like, Bob really is engaging. Like, he's pissed us all off. And that's a really, that's a really interesting engagement. And you go back to the sort of end of the bonnet stuff. Could we spend some time thinking about how we feel about the engagement that we are having? It is definitely engagement because we are feeling it. We're all irritated, we're all annoyed, we're all frustrated, or whatever it might be. That might be useful. Maybe we should think about that and pay some attention to it rather than just locating it in Bob and saying, Bob's the problem, isn't he? Because he's not really doing it properly. Um, so here's Bob. Bob, it could be Bob. And Bob had, you know, here's someone else, he had an appointment, he's turned up, and he's doing, doing therapy. Look, some real content is happening. This is great, we like this. Um, and here's Bob, and he had an appointment with me half an hour ago, and he's engaging by not turning up. That's his engagement. Maybe he's trying to teach me something about uh, being abandoned or what it means to be left or maybe showing me something about disappointment or about not mattering or something. Maybe there's something in the not turning out which is really important if I spent some time uh, sort of thinking about it in some way. It's interesting. There's, a, there's somebody I did refer to the call centre and you can get some really nice sort of um, Kafka-esque conversations about this sort of stuff. Oh yeah, and that chap you refer you didn't actually turn up. Yeah, yeah, and that's the way he engages. <laughs> no, no, but he, he didn't actually come to the... Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no that, that's, that's classic. That's, that's his way of engaging. He's very much into... Yeah, but he didn't actually come to the clinic. Like, he didn't actually come to the way. And this can go on until the phone just goes... Bang. And, and because we really struggle with that sort of engagement, we have a very monotheistic idea of what engagement is, and it is turn up, do the stuff, go and uh, so, so say thank you. So I guess the idea is it's all engaged... You can think about somebody you're in a relationship with them of one type or another, and we might usefully spend a bit of time thinking about the quality and the nature of that, of that relationship, particularly when some of the feelings that are evoked in us are difficult, uh, troubling, anxiety-provoking, worrying, uh, less perhaps important when it's all running very, very smoothly. Um, so I'm going to give you a case example, uh, a real one, not a word this time, but of somebody I've been involved in working with for a number of years um, who has, we, we quite like this sort of thing, multiple and complex needs, I don't really know what it means, uh, I'll say a bit more about it in a minute but she's a young female who lives in sport accommodation um, she's dependent on her carers for her basic activities of daily living uh, she splits carers and by that I mean, going back to the, the sort of golem picture, there can be she can sort of get very involved with some members of staff in a sort of, oh, you're very good, you do, you understand me better than anyone else, and then the other person is a dick, isn't it? You get sort of these sort of splits going on. And she engages with support in a variety of uh, interesting ways. It can be very demanding. Sometimes, I need this, I need this, and other times, I don't need anybody! So again, you have that sort of quite complicated sort of relationship. Um, she's very, very emotionally labile, and by that I mean sort of ranging from streams of 
happiness and sort of floods of tears, in, often in very, very short spaces of time. Very occasionally aggressive and can be violent. Um, this is important, as we've been talking about, because very strong extremes of emotion in carelessness, which can range from wanting to do everything for her and love her and look after her forever, through to just like, see her and never ever want to see you again. Um, she gets called bonkers by other residents, um, and she has a range of dependencies and addictions, and some very volatile relationships with her friend. I've been involved with her for a number of years, and I asked if I could show a picture of her, and she said yes. Um, and here she is. This is my daughter. She's a... She's a she, was, she was six when, when I wrote this case study. Uh, and all of this is true about her. Um, and she kind of gets away with it because she's six. But if she was pulling this sort of shit when she was 35, she'd attract the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder quite easily, really. Um, and she's obviously in a treatment program uh, with me and, and Claire. And we're not doing anything particularly uh, sort of fancy or, or uh, Claire really doesn't really help her. I'm a psychologist, frankly. We, what we're doing is sort of muddling through like most people do and trying to be consistent and reliable and, and bear it all. Um, and it helps that we're sort of psychotically in love with her because if we weren't, then it might be slightly more difficult, uh, really. But it's, worth, it's, it's just to sort of highlight that we all have multiple and complex needs. All of us, really. Uh, sometimes they're not so, so noticeable because they're being met. And if we have a good capacity to get them met, then they're not particularly uh, obvious in some way. Um, but if we can't get them met, they become obvious. And I guess the idea here is that Iris will just grow out of it. Well, we don't grow out of anything. We develop out of things depending on the quality and the nature of the relationships that we are in developmentally. And they will describe the degree to which we end up with a, a mind that is populated uh, in a variety of ways we've sort of talked about, really. It's worth remembering, for example, that there is a, a worldwide multi-center uh, trial going on at any one point in time uh, that deals with education, health, social care, justice, all the rest of it. And it's called the family. And, and most patients come out of the family doing okay, actually. Um, and yet, essentially, when we come to develop things like mental health services, we just ditch that, we forget all of that, and we do something completely different that doesn't really pay attention to what are the sort of fundamental health-giving properties of a family, which we know quite a lot about. And they are things like what was touched on before, stability, reliability, containment, dependability, trust, you know, tolerance, bearing stuff, being, uh, being consistent, not going, well, that's the toddler parents off. You'll be getting new parents in a couple of weeks. They'll take, they'll take you through to 13, and then the adolescent parents will come in, and then they'll, they'll be with the tricky stuff. Um, and it's, it's hard work, really. It's, it's, um, <laughs> we've all been there. It, 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 it's hard work to sort of to bear and to contain and to tolerate sometimes emotions that can be very, very challenging uh, and very, very difficult, really. Um, it's extra work, and it's difficult work at times. It's sometimes I get annoyed when uh, people like myself will go around telling to you, oh, well, you need to be trauma-informed, and you need to do this and be more compassionate. Like, it's no extra work. Like, you're not busy enough as it is, without really acknowledging that sometimes it's very, very, very hard to stay interested and curious and thoughtful about someone who seems to be working really hard to kill off your interests and evoke very strong feelings of things like hatred and dislike 
and, and we get sort of memos, I'm sure you have a similar thing going around in the NHS saying, you must really like all your patients and be compassionate. Well, what about the ones you hate? <laughs> and it's really important to acknowledge things like hatred, because if you don't, it's far more likely that you will enact it in some way that might be problematic and keep on going the very thing that's evoked hatred in the first place. You have some sort of process where you can think about hate usefully and try and use it to understand how we might position ourselves in relation to that person, rather than just going, let's get rid of them in some way. Um, so we've reached the end, thank you. Uh, this is a great book as well, pop on pop. <laughs> stop, I only put it stop as in this is the end and I'm going to stop, uh, but you must not pop on pop, ever. Um, we can. So yes, this is something I said yesterday. Um, <laughs> I, I copied it slightly. Um, but as we've talked about, I think it, it's important to sort of, I probably slightly over that particular statement, but that education is very, very fundamentally uh, relational. Um, and that would say for many uh, kids who may end up coming into contact with me later on, trust something so basic, so sort of simple that we take for granted, like the breathing, um, unless we don't have it, is utterly, utterly fundamental. Now, how do you teach that? It's not an intellectual property. You can't write it on a blackboard. It's only develops in relationships. It is uh, transactional. It is developmental. It comes with time and experience. And uh, as I was saying, the, the, the Hard Edges report, I think, will say something very fundamental about how important education might be um, to teach people not just things about content, but something about what it is uh, to exist in the world as a relational um, human being. Really. As I say, that is extra work. I think it really, really is extra work. Um, most of my time is spent doing this. No, no, most of my time is spent going around supporting staff. So I have about 25 uh, staff groups who work with people in the homeless sector uh, in and around Edinburgh and the Lothians. And it's a chance for them to come and talk about hatred and talk about frustration and talk about defeat and talk about all sorts of feelings that are very genuine and very real. And if we didn't pay attention to them, make, make it far more likely that that worker is going to discharge that person who we know has experienced some of the highest levels of social um, injustice going. We know that. We can read it. We know about their history. But it doesn't stop us at times having some complicated feelings about them that don't necessarily organize us towards being caring. So you need to put things in place to think about that sort of stuff and take that, that side of it very, very seriously. So to, that's the title, which is to shine a light on this invisible stuff that is either taboo, because the organizers, organization says, you must hate people, that's terrible, you must like them all. Um, well, that doesn't get us anywhere. Really. You need to pay attention to the things that are actually going on and try and do something useful with them. Um, I think uh, I put this up because you see a lot of these around, don't you? Certainly in Edinburgh just now, you see a fair amount of these just now. And it's really, really clear, isn't it, when there's sort of um, falling masonry all over the place that you might need to put on a hard hat or ear protectors or, or boots or anything like that. Um, but who's ever seen one of these for psychological safety at their place of work? Where it says, no supervision, no protected re reflective practice, no dedicated time for training and support, no entry. Now you're not doing this, you're not seeing any kids, unless you have all this, this protection in place. Because masonry is very easy to see, I guess, and blocks and bricks all flying around. But actually, in a lot of the places we work, there's a lot of psychological masonry flying around, but it's invisible. 
You don't see it. You feel it, and it gives rise to things like burnout and all sorts of stuff, uh, and punitive responses to people, uh, and all sorts of things. Um, but how you take this sort of stuff, how you shine a light on it, recognize it, and then put sort of things in place for it. I think... Um, professions like mine have a responsibility John Stoney was talking about integration I think that's really really important uh, this is what usually what psychology service looks like, it's sort of here uh, one person can come up at a time really to come and see somebody, a specialist up in the tower uh, for treatment and then have to sort of climb back down again whereas in many cases I think a lot of our time and resource might be better spent supporting the people who do all of the work. You see lots of people in schools or uh, sport workers or GPs or places where there's large contact with large portions of the population. So take a more sort of general public health approach to this sort of thing rather than, oh, that individual there, that child there, he's got a problem in him. He needs to go up the tower to go and see the specialist. And then when he's had the treatment, he can come back down and join the rest of the people. And there's not really much connection between the two. As opposed to we're all in the mental health business. All of us. I don't think studying to be a clinical psychologist or a psychoanalyst for that matter necessarily makes me a better person in terms of being in relation to people. I just don't buy it. I don't think that's true. I think there's huge amounts of the workforce that have a huge and great capacity to be therapeutic to the people they are working with. Um, And I think services like mine could do to, could do well to distribute some of our resources more broadly uh, across uh, all sorts of other services such that we really did have something a bit more um, integrated in. Uh, that's the end. Uh, that, this, I put this up because it's quite funny. Uh, Virginia Carmelita says, there's a naked therapist here and he's saying, why are you trying to make this about me? Um, and I put that because uh, sometimes it's very hard to get the organisation to think about what it's doing and how it's behaving and how it's relating, um, even when it's doing some quite crazy stuff, really, and stuff that um, is aimed at trying to resolve the problem, but it often, uh, where I work, can be reenacting it um, over and over again. Thank you very much.